Next week, if we're in Isaiah 52 this week, it means next week. Okay, you're thinking it's you, Patrick, so we're in Isaiah 52 again. And actually, we will be, but we'll end up in Isaiah 53. And I don't know how long we're going to be there. Isaiah 53 is so precious. Um, so we'll see what the Lord has. We'll take it, we'll take it in his time. But I'm excited for tonight. Any time that we get to open Isaiah, there's, there's treasure here. There's joy here. And of course, we were reminded this past weekend as we began Romans 9, how much people miss out on. How much, how much joy they, they leave on the table how much, how much treasure they passed by when people read Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and, and so much of Scripture with the presupposition that God has done with Israel. Now, there's no, sh there's, there's, there's no doubt richness and elegance just reading a passage like Isaiah 52 only as short-term prophecy. Short-term as in 150 years in Isaiah's future. There's, there's plenty of richness, there's plenty of elegance. Just reading it as words spoken to encourage Judah. Really, we can call, call it Israel, because when they return from the land, they're, they're, they're Israel again. But the Israelites in exile... And in fact, in fact, it's it's a short chapter. Why don't we take a, a first pass through just reading it that way, just looking at it through that lens, and then we'll circle back and and we'll look at it through some different eyes. But just looking at it as near-term prophecy spoken from Isaiah to those who would be captive in Babylon 150 years from when he was speaking. Isaiah 52, verse 1, Awake, awake! Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust, arise, and then sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Let's just pause there. Isaiah sang prophetically, there's going to come a time when it's time. There's going to come a day when it's that day, when it's time to move, when it's time to go back home. After 70 years in captivity, there's a time when, when the, the slave's collar will be removed from your neck, where the doors will be thrown open, where the chains will be thrown off. 70 years of captivity will end. Back in chapter 48, chapter 48, verse 20, the Lord announced it. Here he repeats it. There's going to come a time where you get to throw off your sackcloth and ashes. That's what the reference to dust is in verse 2. The time of mourning will be over. It'll be time to put on your party clothes. Time to put on your church clothes. You can also read it as, there'll be a time to put down those last remaining vestiges of idolatry. Those, 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 those 
elements of idol worship that you brought with you in Babylon that you, that you hid or, or, or maybe that, that you openly showed affection for, there's going to be a time when you're not going to need them, not going to want them. There's going to be a time when you're absolutely, completely done with them. There's going to come a time for celebration where God will lead you out of exile and lead you back home to Jerusalem. But how? How is such a thing possible? How will such a thing be possible? After seven decades of of exile, of captivity, of punishment, how does it end? Because I say so, God says. Verse 3, because I'm redeeming you. For thus says the Lord, you've sold yourselves for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. Put a mark next to verse 3. It's one of the things we're going to come back to. But for now, just notice that God is saying, again, because he said it in, verse, uh, in, in chapter 50, this was never about profit. This was never about me, God says. You staying in captivity doesn't profit me. In fact, it costs me. Verse 4, for thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there, and then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. Egypt oppressed my people, God says. There was a time of slavery in Egypt after the days of Joseph, leading up to and including the days of Moses. Egypt oppressed my people. That ended with the Exodus. Assyria oppressed you. And that was the whole first half of the book of Isaiah, right? Every time that happens, God says, that costs me. And it's costing me now. Because every time the Gentile nations triumph over you, They get the wrong idea about me. They think that I'm not the almighty God I claim to be. They think that because they have seasons of victory over you, they successfully persecute you and enslave you, that I'm too weak to protect you. They blaspheme my name. They say bad things about me. You being in captivity doesn't profit me, doesn't delight me. It costs me, God says. But I've always corrected that way of thinking, haven't I? He asks them. I brought you out of Egypt. I pushed Assyria back when they pulled up around the walls of Jerusalem. I pushed them back. And verse 6, I'm going to do it again. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know it in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. I'm going to bring you out of captivity. I'm going to show myself strong to you, the doubters among you. I'm going to show myself strong. I'm going to show that your faith has a, has a righteous basis. And I'm going to show myself to the nations through you. I'm going to show myself strong to you and to all of the nations who are watching you. Verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, 
who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This reads like a psalm of ascent, doesn't it? The psalms that the Israelites would sing as they climbed their way, as they made pilgrimage to Jerusalem, the city on a hill. It reads like one of those psalms. Your watchmen, verse 8, shall lift up their voices. With their voices they shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all of the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. It's certainly one way to read it, right? Praise from God's people on their way back to the land, making the journey from Babylon back to Israel. Singing peace, verse 7. The oppression is over. Singing salvation, same verse. God has delivered us from the hand of our captives. Just think what those who are still living in the ruins of Jerusalem are going to say when they see us. When they see this crowd of thousands climbing the hill to Jerusalem. Think about how they're going to respond when the watchmen see us coming. How they'll, how they'll shout with joy, welcoming us back. Verse 11, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. There's going to come a time, Isaiah says, God through Isaiah, that God will say, go, go now. And don't bring anything of Babylon with you. You don't need it anymore. You never needed it. Go, go out and, and, and don't carry the filth and the uncleanness of the Gentiles with you. Don't carry it, don't handle it, don't even touch it. Instead, carry back the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Remember Nebuchadnezzar took the furnishings, took the fixtures, took the cups and the plates and, 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 the, and, and the vessels from the temple. Remember he was drinking out of them, defiling them, Daniel chapter 5, the night that, ga that, that God gave them over into the hands of their enemies. Daniel 5, if you want to refresh yourself. Ezra 1 verse 7, we read that Cyrus, when he, when he says, yeah, it's okay for you to go home now, Cyrus brings those same fixtures, those same vessels out, and he hands them back over. And he says, take these, these are yours. Take them back, put them where they belong. In short, God is going to say to the Israelites in exile what, what, what my basketball coach used to say to me. Be quick, but don't hurry. Leave with urgency, but leave with dignity. Again, verse 12. Don't go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. This is in contrast to the Exodus, right? Before the Exodus, God said, eat the Passover with your shoes on, with your loins girded, with your staff close at hand. This is going to be different God says. This time you're not running from something, you're running to something. You're not running for your lives, you're running back to your homeland. Cyrus is going to send you out, it's going to be with his blessing, and it's going to be with my protection. God underscores that in Ezra chapter 8. 
When Ezra says, I'm hesitant to ask for the king to send soldiers to protect us. And God says, yeah, but, but I've got you. I've engineered this. I'll go before you and I'll bring up the rear. There's nothing wrong with that reading of Isaiah 52. It's completely accurate. And by the way, we're going to pause there because the rest of the chapter fits better actually with Isaiah 53. Chapter divisions are man-made and sometimes they're not exactly where, where they ought to be. The rest of the chapter goes with Isaiah 53. We'll consider it next week. But verses 1 through 12, everything we just read is a true and good and apt reading. It's a good interpretation. It's just incomplete. Now, we can add a dimension, as many are wont to do. We can add a dimension. We can look for the church in Isaiah 52. It will still be incomplete. There are those who, who readily concede there's more going on than just Israel's return from exile in the 6th century B.C. They'll point to us to places like 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm just going to read a verse. You don't have to turn there. You've heard the verse. Knowing you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ... Okay, there was a little bit of two verses. So, so there are those who take that and say, oh, he's, back in Isaiah 52, verse 3, he's talking about redemption. Remember I, I said mark that. You've sold yourself for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. Well, we were redeemed without money. Jesus redeemed us at the cross. So we can look at this and we can see the church. And we can look at verse 7 and say how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings the good news. And we can say, oh my goodness, that's the Great Commission. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation. That's us. That's why we're here. The one thing we can't do in heaven is tell people about Jesus who don't already know about Jesus. And surely when we read this passage, your watchmen shall lift up their voices. They'll see to eye when the Lord brings back Zion, break forth into joy, sing together. Surely there's, there's more going on there than, than just the, children, the, 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 the Israelites going back to Jerusalem because when they went back, it was, a, it was a dung heap. It was a junk pile. It was a wasteland. When we read Nehemiah, Nehemiah is... is, is He's, he's tearing his clothes because he looks at Jerusalem and he says, it's a hole, it's a pit. And it stays that way for a long time. Even as they begin to read the, uh, rebuild the temple, we read in Haggai, the people who remembered the former temple were disappointed. This isn't like the temple we used to have. This is disappointing. This is sad. So, so there are those who, who look at the rejoicing at the return to Jerusalem and say, surely this must be talking about the church. Surely when, when we read, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, surely that's God saying to you and I, who are the temples of the Holy Spirit, separate yourself from earthly Babylon. This must resonate with 2 Corinthians 6, 
Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch which is, which is unclean and I'll receive you. Well, Paul tells us. He quotes from Isaiah 52 and he says that this applies to the church. He's telling the Gentiles who have come to Christ, let go of the world and leave behind your idols and live holy lives separated as unto the Lord. I think that's an entirely reasonable application of Isaiah 52. I think we're called to separate ourselves from the world. And verse 11, of course we're called to go out and preach the good news. Of course we're called out to show people Jesus in us. I read last week a little book by Ray Ortland. I talked about Ray Ortland last summer after hearing him speak at a conference. And I, and I never had had a chance to put eyes on the book that his message was actually based on. One of the passages that, it, it's a wonderful book, by the way, um, but one of the passages that jumped out to me, the command of Christ is that we love one another. The example of Christ is that we die for one another. The promise of Christ is that our love will show a skeptical world the difference he really makes. Love is Christ's authorized way for us to be convincing. People today don't care about doctrine, but they do care about love. The world is not impressed by anything about us but the love of Christ, nor should they be. If we fail to love one another in ways so striking we start looking like Jesus, then the world has the right to judge we know nothing of them. They might be wrong, we might indeed be Christians, but the world is right to dismiss unloving Christians as unchristian. Jesus himself gave them that right. I thought that that was really well said. And it resonates with verse 7. Because verse 7 isn't just speaking of the one who preaches the good news, but the one who is the good news, who shows the good news, who makes the love of God manifest. And I think it's a perfectly reasonable application of this chapter. I think it's a vital application. But it misses another layer of straightforward interpretation. Look again at verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the circumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Before we hasten to scratch out Jerusalem and pencil in the church, have we exhausted all of the meaning <coughs> of this verse for Israel. Let me ask that question another way. Was that verse completely fulfilled in Israel in 538 BC when Cyrus says, it's okay, you can leave now? Answer must be no, or he wouldn't be asking the question, right? The uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Come on! The uncircumcised and the unclean were waiting for them when they got back. Who was dwelling in Jerusalem 
when the various waves of returnees returned. It was a mixed multitude, right? Were there some Judeans? Yes. Were there a lot of Samaritans? Yes. Were there even some Gentiles? Yes. And that was true from that time until the time of Jesus? It was true at the time of Jesus? It's been true since the time of Jesus. There have always been the uncircumcised and the unclean dwelling in Jerusalem. Ho, 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 says the one who wants to read this allegorically. That won't be true in the new Jerusalem. That won't be true in the Jerusalem we read about in Revelation 21. There's your new Jerusalem with the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, that's fine. I don't dispute that. But isn't it also true of Jerusalem during the kingdom? Isn't that also true of Jerusalem when Jesus is personally ruling and reigning in Jerusalem the way God promised he would? He said to David, your descendant will sit on a never-ending throne, an eternal inheritance. That's a promise that God still has to keep. And everything we read about that time, the kingdom begins with only believers, with only the believing remnant, with only the tribulation saints, with only the returned church. No one clean. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord, you've sold yourself for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. Who was God talking about when he first brought this subject up two chapters ago? Chapter 50, he was talking to Israel. He was responding to Israel's complaint. He was responding to Israel's lament. You divorced us. You sold us into slavery. And God's response was, where's your bill of divorcement? If I divorced you, there should be a written document. There should be a record of those proceedings. I don't think you can produce it. And if I sold you into slavery, where is the receipt? He was talking about, I said Israel, he was talking specifically about Judah. I should be more precise when he had that conversation, when the subject came up in in Isaiah 50. So it stands to reason he would be having the same conversation. It would be a continuation of the same discussion. When he says in verse 3, I didn't get money when you went into slavery. And I didn't pay money for you, Judah, to redeem you. But I did pay for you. And he's going to talk about how he paid. He's going to talk about who paid in the very next chapter in Isaiah 53, which undeniably pictures Jesus Christ. Fast forward to the tribulation. God's people being persecuted, again being driven out of the land. Why? It's an extension of of the diaspora that began in 70 AD for rejecting their Messiah. 
But when they repent, when they confess, when they cry out, what happens? Look at verse 6. My people will know my name. They shall know in that day, which always points us to the end times, that I am he who speaks, behold, it is I. The returned Christ, Christ who has come back, says it is I. It was me the first time, but this time you know me. Verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Question, who could that have been? John the Baptist. Verse 7 could have referred to John the Baptist because wasn't that his ministry? To proclaim the coming king. To say, Israel, the time of your redemption is at hand. He was the forerunner. The one who came with the ministry of Elijah to announce Messiah. But Israel didn't want to hear it. So now there'll be another prophet, another Elijah. This time, I believe, the actual Elijah accompanied by Moses. That's who I think the two witnesses are in Revelation. It could be Elijah and Enoch. I'm pretty sure one of them is Elijah. We've talked about that in the past. Announcing the coming of Messiah. And when he returns, the watchmen shall lift up their voices. We talked about this in Isaiah 34. We're going to talk about it again in Isaiah 63. I suspect, and, I, and I'm not alone, this isn't, this, this isn't mainstream, but it's not fringe either. There's good reason to believe that when Jesus returns, he returns first to Basra. We would say Edom, Petra. And, and, and from there makes his way to Jerusalem, where the watchmen see him coming across the plain, saying, is it? Could it be? Wait a minute. Dripping with blood. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices they shall sing together. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. God redeems captive Judah in 538 BC. He redeems Jerusalem at the end of the tribulation. The Lord will make bare his holy arm in the eyes of all of the nations and all of the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That hasn't happened yet. And you could argue, well, that's the Great Commission and that's the church and that's unfolding and that's in progress and that's fine. But the fulfillment of it is when Christ returns in glory. When the servant of Isaiah 53, when the arm of the Lord, when Jesus, three ways of saying the same thing, reigns in Jerusalem, when he rebuilds Jerusalem, 
when he revives Jerusalem and the land around Jerusalem and reveals his glory to the nations from Jerusalem. Look at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. That's never happened in Jerusalem, but it will. The application for tonight. We talked about it before. We went there in the middle instead of leaving it for the end. And it's a good one. It's a great one. Today we're called to live, verse 11, to come out of the world, to leave behind filth and idolatry, and to live, verse 7, to be vessels of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the good news, demonstrating the good news, being witnesses, proclaiming peace, bringing good tidings, putting salvation on display. Look what God has done. And he wants to do it for you. But the good news is better. The glad tidings are gladder when we're clear, when when we make clear that the peace that God promises and the salvation he offers is available to everyone, to anyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, even those who rejected their Messiah. When we invent doctrine that limits the domain of God's salvation, that restricts the opportunity when we read verses about predestination without also reading the ones that talk about free will and God's heart for the lost, when we read verses about God's chastisement of Israel without also reading verses about his undiminished affection and ultimate redemption of Israel, good news isn't quite so good because it's not for everyone. And the peace isn't quite so peaceful because for some it's unattainable. And the salvation that's pictured here isn't quite so joyful because I might be able to sin my way out of it. Because apparently Israel did. You want to read an exhortation to the church here? Go for it because it's there. It, see it, hear it, receive it, live it, preach it, go after it. Remind each other of it. It's important. The application of this chapter to the church is important. But we can't miss Israel on the way. Because when we see God's love for Israel, when we see his redemption of Israel by the same cross Israel engineered, the redemption purchased on the cross that Israel asked for, Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. When we see that, we see an even bigger God. We see greater mercy. We see a more perfect love and a more beautiful plan. And I want to praise him even more and love him even more and surrender to him even more, and serve him even more. Lord, thank you for the clarity that your spirit ministers. Thank you that you've opened our eyes, opened our hearts to see 
you rescue and redeem all who claim, who, who call on the name of the Lord. We cannot sin ourselves beyond your reach. Thank you for the hope, for the promise, for the grace that we see in these pages. Jesus, teach us to lay hold of it, to treasure it, to esteem it. And give us the urgency that we read here to proclaim it, to declare it, to live it, to be witnesses. In your holy name, amen.